This morning, we're continuing our look at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick up this morning at Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 13. I'm going to read down to verse 21 in just a moment, and you're going to notice as I read this portion of Scripture that essentially what I'm about to read for us is mostly a list of names. So you may be thinking, all right, the pastor's about to read a list of names. How is this going to turn somehow into a message? Well, this is a group of people that have very fascinating stories and are people who exemplify what it looks like to be committed to Christ in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of a hostile environment. And so we're going to talk about these people that are listed here in Mark chapter 3. Who were the apostles of Jesus? Well, it tells us here who they were, so turn there with me if you would. Mark 3, starting with verse 13, it says this, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for just the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together right now. Lord, we're grateful for what you reveal to us in this portion of Scripture. We're grateful for the names that are listed here and the people that are represented here because it was in them and through them that you accomplished a a mighty work. And Lord, we're just so grateful that we have the opportunity to be able to look at what you did through this group of men. Lord, we're thankful for the fact that just as you did with this group of men, that you're willing to do so with us, meaning that you're willing to look at our lives, that you're willing to to completely transform us and make us a new creation in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you send us out on a mission to glorify your name. Lord, we're grateful for that privilege. We're grateful to be able to look at the examples of others that you've called in such a way. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand what we read now so that we can grow from it and bring you glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few questions just as we kind of start looking at this and maybe even just preparing our minds to to be thinking about some of the concepts that are talked about here. But first of all, first question is this, what kind of training did you complete in order to serve in your vocation? It's probably some kind of training you had to complete to do what you do. Uh, Did you have to do some form of special schooling? I know for some of us that that's very much the case. You had to do maybe some form of special schooling. Some of us can testify to the fact that we were mentored by people who had years of experience in our role, and so they mentored us from their experience and taught us the different things that they knew and mentored us so that we would be able to replicate the type of things that they were good at. Maybe your training required you to travel to a different place. Sometimes certain forms of training are really only offered in certain locations, and so maybe some of us have had to travel. Um, Some of us could probably testify to the fact that 
we spent years training to do what we do. There are some of you that I know spent years and years and years in order to learn the things you had to learn and practice the things that you would uh, eventually be doing. And depending on what we do, our answers to those questions and those scenarios might be drastically different. There's all sorts of different paths that, that lead to being able to do certain vocations. And a few weeks ago, I was invited to sit down for lunch with a former pastor. Early in his life, he was telling me that he had no expectation that he was going to serve in that role. That was not even on his radar. He wasn't thinking about it at all. But he definitely had a desire and a drive to be able to teach people the scriptures. And so he thought at the time, he thought, I'm going to pursue theological training because I would like to be able to teach the scriptures. And so he did that. He spent years studying theology, studying the Bible, preparing to be able to teach. And partway through that training, he was invited to participate in an internship at a church in the Midwest. And so he, he said yes to that invitation. He started serving there. And toward the end of that internship, the church asked him if he would consider joining their pastoral staff. He agreed to that, even though that was not initially on his radar. And he said he ended up serving in that role for about 20 years. It was just under 20 years. And so in the midst of our conversation, he then asked me about my background and my training and the path that led me to do what I'm doing. And so I told him about some of the similarity that we had in our paths and how initially I wasn't planning to serve as a pastor. Initially, my plan, my desire was to serve as a high school history teacher until the Lord changed my course. And then I told him about the degrees that I earned. I told him about the training that I received, particularly focused on some of the seasoned pastors that I'm really, really grateful for the fact that they took time to mentor me and pour into my life and let me ask them all sorts of questions and, and things like that. I, I told them then about some of the specialized training that I decided to go and get after I'd been serving as a pastor for a few years because I thought this was never covered in any of my formalized training, so maybe I need to go get some of this. And so I told them about some of that. And uh, I, I told him all of it was beneficial, but the two of us agreed that none of the training that he received or none of the training that I received could compare with the type of training and the mentorship that the apostles received through the in-person guidance and instruction of Jesus. And that's the type of thing we're seeing in these early chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And the type of thing that we're seeing here in this portion of Scripture in particular, because when you look at Mark chapter 3, particularly the verses that we just read, it tells us about 12 men that Jesus, that Jesus designated as apostles. They're referred to as apostles. Now, even when you look at just the, the previous chapters, you could start to see a pattern that this was a, a very interesting group of men. And I would imagine that some of the people on this list, some of the people that Jesus chose as his apostles really surprised people that knew them, that Jesus would select them for such a role. It's kind of like when you go back to, you ever go back to your high school reunion and you meet some people and you're surprised like, oh, you actually did something with yourself. I didn't see that coming. Like, I really didn't see that coming. I, I in fact, thought the opposite would be the case. I think when some of the people in that generation looked at what Jesus was doing with these apostles, they did not assume that some of these men were going to be people that you and I would talk about 2,000 years later. They did not assume that these would be people that the Lord used in really amazing ways. These were just regular people that the Lord did amazing things through, and some of them you would even look at and you would say, I don't even know if I'd call that guy a regular guy. I think I'd just call that guy kind of an outcast or maybe a, a social... Uh, 
you know, social weirdo or something like that. And yet Jesus looked at the guy and said, you know what, I want you on my team. And I think people during that generation, many of them probably looked at this group and thought, why is this the group he selects? This group of men, they had different backgrounds. We know from Scripture they had very different personalities. And I love when their personalities are revealed when we look at what the Scripture tells us. Because some of them were really quirky, and some of them, like Peter in particular, had the gift of putting his foot in his mouth. He would say things, and then afterward, you're like, Peter, why would you say that? And then you think about yourself in that context, you're like, I'd probably be the one saying that stuff too, right? Very different personalities. I think they had very different expectations for their lives. Some of them were serving in professional careers. Some of them were serving as commercial fishermen. Some of them were doing all sorts of things. They had very different expectations for their lives. But when Jesus invited them to follow him, one commonality that this group had was that they obeyed him. He invited them to follow him, and they said, yes. And in some cases, you could look at it, in particular Levi, it's not even really an invitation that Jesus gives them. It's more of a command. He says, follow me. And it's a command. He's like, follow me. He just tells them, follow me. And Levi's like, you got it. That's their commonality. Jesus said, follow me. And they said, yes. And he used these men to cause the message of the gospel to spread all throughout the world. And I'm so grateful for this, this team of people he put together and inspired and empowered because eventually the message of the gospel reached our ears. And it was this initial group of people that they were the ones spreading it. Now, when you look at verses 13 to 15 of, of Mark 3, let me reread these for us. It says this, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. We're going to get into that term in just a moment. And it says, so that this is the reason they were called. It says, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So these were the things that were referenced as far as what his calling on them was supposed to accomplish. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there may have been hundreds or even thousands of people at this point who were following him. And when you look at the context of some of these people following him, some of them were obviously very curious about what he would say or do, and so they would observe him as he was doing what he was doing, almost like this was a form of entertainment or a form of, of, uh, of television you know, for the day and age. They were curious about what he would say or do, but they were more uh, outsiders just observing from a distance. And then some people that were part of these groups of people that were following him were fully devoted to him, completely devoted to who he was and what he was doing, and from among that group, and it was a, a large group, you know, could have been hundreds, could have been thousands of people at this point. From among this larger group, Jesus set aside a smaller group of 12 men to become his inner circle and receive a unique kind of training and a unique kind of mentorship. And Jesus wanted to bring these men close to him so that they could be thoroughly taught the message of the gospel and then sent into the world to preach while also exercising divinely ordained power to exercise demons. That's what the Scripture reveals about what Jesus was calling them to do. You're going you're to be trained by me, you're going to go out into the world, you're going to preach the message of the gospel, and I'm going to give you the authority to cast out demons. And he calls them apostles. He refers to them as apostles. Now, an apostle, when you see that term here used in this context, what it's talking about is one who is sent on a mission with a message. It's a good way to summarize it in our mind. This is someone that's called out, given a mission, given a message, go out with this message, on this mission, and let people know. These were Christ's sent ones. 
He was sending them out. They had a very unique designation of authority in the days of the early church, and it was a foundational role. It was a foundational role, an important thing that the Lord was calling them to do. And it was part of this season, this is, this is revealing to us this, this unfolding plan of God to, to redeem humanity, and these apostles were being sent out into the world to help accomplish what Christ had sent them to accomplish. And in some respects, I imagine this small group of 12, initially when they were designated, because you have large groups of people that are looking to see Jesus, and then a little bit of a smaller group that's devotedly following him, but then among that, that group of devoted people, you have this group of 12 that's now designated with this foundational designation. And I imagine when they got that designation, when they were told, you 12 are going to be the apostles, I imagine that they felt honored to receive that designation. You know, if you were in that group and you were selected for that, wouldn't that feel like an honor? For Christ, that you have now left all the things you were familiar with to follow, if he says, all right, you're going to be part of my small inner circle, you're going to have this designation, I imagine they felt honored. But in many respects, what they were about to see was, yeah, this absolutely was an honor, but there was also going to be a very high price required of them as they ministered to others. And as they spoke to people hostile people in hostile places. I always get a kick out of um, when, I, when I meet people that, that talk about, you know, the joy of, of serving in any form of ministry when I discover that they think it's going to be really, really comfortable and pleasant and wonderful. And some aspects are extremely pleasant and extremely wonderful. But the, the idea is we're supposed to look to the apostles and see what kind of life or what kind of example they had, and they were being sent out to hostile people in hostile places. And sometimes I think, why do we expect that things would be any different for us in our generation? As you and I go out into the, the sphere of influence or the world that the Lord allows us to interact in, why do we expect anything better than what they experienced? Hostility is what they experienced, a hostile world, hostile people, but they were being sent out into that. And when you look at verses 16 to 19, the scripture tells us this. It says, he appointed the 12, so it gives us this list of names. It says, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Then it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. That's a tricky name, but it says here, that is sons of thunder. Okay, I don't know what nickname you want. If anyone gives you a nickname, especially Jesus, but if Jesus ever chose to give me a nickname and he said, dude, you're one of the sons of thunder, I'd be like, yes, this is like, this is the coolest designation. Does that get to go on my license plate? Do I get to wear a badge that says that? Like, I don't know exactly all the details of why he chose that as a nickname for these guys, but he looked at these two guys, he looks at James and John, he's like, sons of thunder. It's like, that's right, Jesus, sons of thunder, you know? It sounds like you're part of like a biker gang, doesn't it, you know? <laughs> They'd get on like these real fast camels at the time, you know, and be like, we're the sons of thunder. Whoa, whoa. I'm done. It says this. Andrew and Philip, also on the list. And it says, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas. Our sound tech, what's his, his name is Matthew Thomas. You're up there, kind of, right? Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Then it also says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So you have Mark listing the, this group of names. And you could see this group of names here. And then when you look at the other Gospels, what we discover 
is that it was actually common for some of these guys to go by more than one name. That was actually a common practice at the time. For example, the apostle we know as Peter, sometimes he's referenced as Peter, sometimes he's also referenced as as Simon, sometimes he's also referenced as Simon Peter, and then elsewhere he's referenced as Cephas. So, you know, four different examples we could see of his name. Matthew was also referred to as Levi. Uh, You see the name Bartholomew on the list. He's also called Nathaniel. So some of these guys went by more than one name. And by the way, this was a common practice in their day. Also, I would imagine in our day we could say it's a, a relatively common practice as well. I'm certain that some of us go by different names depending on the context that we find ourselves in. Uh, thinking about uh, mentoring, by the way, the pastor who mentored me doesn't like his first name. He doesn't like his first name. And he always said to me, he said, you know, I, at some point, I think I'm just going to go by my middle name. And I said, oh, yeah? I said, what's your middle name? He said, my middle name's Robert. And I said, well, what's stopping you? He's like, well, be honest with you, I, it's kind of my plan that I'm going to wait until after my mother passes away before I do that, because I think she'd kill me if, uh, if I did that. So he's in his 70s now, and his mother just recently passed away. So he's been telling me that for decades, that he was going to do that. But I found out that where he has, he has a cabin, and he said, yeah, where I have that cabin, pe- people are a little rugged. So, you know, I, I thought, yeah, I'm going to tell people my name's Robert. But he said, no, I'm not even going to tell my name's Robert. I'm just Bob. And so he just goes by Bob. That's not his name at all. His name's Carrie, right? But his middle name is Robert, so he's like, I want to be Bob. So he's Bob now, right, in certain contexts. I'm like, good for you. But we call, we call ourselves different things, right, in different contexts. We see that even with the, uh, with the disciples here, with the apostles. And the Gospels tell us a variety of things about this crew, including some of their foibles, including, uh, you know, moments of immaturity. And when reading the Scriptures, one of the things that, that you, you start, you could tell that the Gospel writers are trying to be very intentional to reveal. They're trying to show us that these were ordinary men. These were people just like you and me, that Jesus was raising up for a very special task. If anyone has in their mind that these were somehow superstars by nature, that's a misunderstanding of who these guys were. The Gospels go to great lengths to show us these are ordinary men that the Lord raised up. They said, yes, we will obey you, Jesus. We will follow you, Jesus. And the Lord did some amazing things in and through them. And here's the thing. Don't be surprised, by the way, if that's a story that you eventually tell others about your life as well. Jesus has a habit of raising up ordinary people like you and me and training us through the guidance of his Holy Spirit and the counsel of his word and the mentorship of our brothers and sisters in Christ and then sending out each of us, into into this world as his ambassadors. So don't think it's just for like a small, select group of of super saints or something like that. That's not the point of what Scripture is trying to communicate. We're being shown that, that people who are willing to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you and I will obey you. I will, I will, when I call you, Lord, I'm actually going to mean it. I'm not just going to use that as a term I tack on. I'm going to say, yeah, you're in charge. You're in charge of my life. If you, if you truly submit your heart, submit your life over to Jesus Christ, don't be surprised if you see him doing some amazing things in and through your life as he sends you out into this corner of the world or another one as his ambassadors. And among the apostles, as we read that list, as, as, as we looked at this, one name probably stood out to you when reading through Mark's list. And I'm assuming that well, you noticed it right away. At the end of Mark's list, Mark mentions Judas Iscariot, and he also mentions 
as he mentions his name, he also gives the, the foreshadowing comment that Judas would be the one who would eventually betray Jesus. That's what he conveys here. Scripture tells us later that Judas went to the chief priest. They promised to give him money and said, we will compensate you. We will give you money to betray Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 14, it says this. When you look at verses 10 and 11, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, when you read later in Scripture, Scripture reveals to us that Judas later regretted this. He regretted his betrayal, and in his grief, he actually took that same, that same money that they gave to him, and um, you know, he, he threw it back at the chief priests, threw it back at them, but then he went and he hung himself in the midst of his grief. It's a very tragic ending for Judas, and uh, just a very tragic outcome to witness when you, when you think about the fact that he was allowed to hear and witness and experience all sorts of miraculous things and amazing things when he traveled with Jesus during the course of Christ's earthly ministry. But Scripture and church history, they, they both combined tell us some interesting things about the lives and the ministries and the eventual deaths of the other apostles as well. So just think about this. Some of these are recorded in Scripture. Some of these are recorded in historical documents. Um, but I'll, I'll just tell you, to the best of our knowledge, this is what happened to these guys. So James, it tells us in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 12, when you look at the second verse of Acts chapter 12, tells us that James was put to death with the sword. That's how it phrases it. It says he was put to death with the sword as he was proclaiming the message of the gospel. People debate what that means, but it may mean that he was beheaded. Uh, Peter, he was crucified, and it's believed that he was crucified upside down at his request because he didn't feel worthy of being crucified in the same manner as our Lord, and some traditions hold that his wife was actually crucified with him. Um, it's believed that Matthew, so this is Levi, who's also referred to as Matthew, uh, that Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia, having been killed with a sword while preaching the message of the gospel in that country. The apostle John, who is the youngest of the apostles, was boiled in oil because he wouldn't renounce his faith in Jesus Christ, but miraculously, miraculously, he survived that. Somehow he survived, I don't know how he survived that, but somehow he survived that. And uh, so he was sentenced to dig in the mines on the island of Patmos. But while he was on that island, he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, Bartholomew, he was whipped to death while ministering in present-day Turkey. Then you have Andrew, he's the brother of Peter. It's believed he was crucified on, we typically think of a cross as like a T-shaped cross. It's believed he was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. And his followers testified that when he was being taken to the cross, he actually remarked, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. That's what history records him as having said, and his followers said that's what he said. But then he spent the next two days, so he didn't always die on the cross quickly. Sometimes it took one, two, even three days in some instances. For him, it took two days, and he spent the next two days preaching to those who were crucifying him until his body, until his body finally gave out. Thomas died in India, where he was stabbed by a spear. 
Matthias, now you saw we didn't mention the name of Matthias so far, but when you look early in the book of Acts, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. It actually mentions that in, in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, and, um, and he was later stoned to death and then beheaded. And when you look at all of this, you're like, all right, church history doesn't paint a very pretty picture of what life was like for these men as they sought to follow Jesus in the midst of a hostile world. But these, this is the type of life that they experienced. This is what they experienced at the hands of those who were not only hostile to, their, to them as individuals, but hostile to the message that they were proclaiming. Even uh, the Apostle Paul, who became an apostle later, um, you know, he's referred to as an apostle to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9, he was eventually beheaded by the Roman Emperor Nero in the year 67 AD. And when speaking to uh, Ananias, Jesus revealed this about the Apostle Paul. It says this in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I look at that statement every time I read that in Acts chapter 9. I think of that and I think, you know, I don't, when I first became a believer in Christ, there is in no way did I have a picture of this thought that, that, that cho- choosing to follow Jesus Christ, that deciding to become one who, who called him Lord and dedicated my life to him, that that would be a life that involves some level of suffering. That wasn't something that I had in mind. I mainly thought about the joy of being forgiven of my sin. And that's certainly a wonderful thing. And I thought about the joy of spending an eternity in his presence. But when you look through what scripture actually says, it reminds us in so many ways, don't be afraid of suffering. It really is one of those things that the Lord oftentimes will call us as his children on this earth to experience. He asks us to go through hard things so that we can be a testimony of his greatness and his power. And also so that we'll not just go through life just expecting every creature comfort comfort under the sun as we're really supposed to be on mission, letting people know the message of the gospel and proclaiming the message of the gospel wherever the Lord gives us an open door. But suffering is oftentimes a big part of that. And the Apostle Paul was, it was, well, Ananias was told, look, I'm going to show the Apostle Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul certainly did suffer uh, during the course of his life. Paul and all the apostles, they were willing to suffer for the the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And, and again, I don't know about you. I, I, I think I could probably guess, though, uh, suffering isn't something that I personally look forward to. I mean, last week I, I got really sick and, you know, I tried not to whine. And I, I think I did medium okay. I'll give myself like, if I'm grading myself on, on how much I whined while I was ill, I'll give myself a B. You could ask my wife. She says, yeah, she affirms. Okay, she's a teacher, so... Uh, fair, we have the same assessment metric, same grading rubric, all right? Um, but <laughs> I, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't like if my shoulder is hurting or my bones ache or can't really breathe correctly. I don't like any form of suffering. I mean, I don't jump up and down excited about any form of suffering. And yet, I look at this and I think, all right, I'd like to be able to say that if Jesus called me to suffer for his glory to suffer for the proclamation of his name, that I would be willing to do so. And I'm sure that you feel the same way, that you'd you'd like to say, I'd be willing to do so. You know how you know? If it actually gets put to the test. It's all theory until we put it to the test, right? 
But when it's put to the test, then you realize, okay, am I actually willing to experience some level of discomfort or suffering for the name of Christ? Most people won't even tell people about Jesus because they're afraid that someone's going to say something critical. So most people won't even dare endure criticism to share about Jesus. And yet you look at the apostles here and they were willing to endure all kinds of suffering, even threats on their lives to, to let people know about the message of the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. And again, as hard as I think it can be to just think about what all these, these people endured while preaching the gospel in their generation and how tragic, I think, in some ways it seems when, when we think about how their lives ended, it feels very tragic. There's something sacred about it that I don't think we should miss because their lives and their ministries and their devotion to Jesus and their deaths, it all provides a, a, just a powerful testimony of the validity of Christ's identity and his resurrection. Now, why would I say that? Well, when I look at their devotion to Christ in both, in both life and death, it honestly bolsters my faith in Jesus because if Jesus hadn't actually risen from death, there is no way these men would have actually endured this. There is no way they would have done that. Most, if not all, would have given up their mission or have, would have just recanted their faith probably quickly rather than uh, experiencing threats from government authorities or local communities or, or leaving you know, what was familiar to them to preach in hostile places. But when you look at their lives, you discover they didn't recant. And they didn't shrink back from sharing the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. You have these apostles remaining strong to the end, ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, fully confident that Jesus is God. Now, ironically, when you look at, when you kind of come back to, to Mark chapter 3, this doesn't appear to have been the confidence that was initially shared by the earthly brothers of Jesus. Uh, we know that after Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and He was born in human flesh, Joseph and Mary, they had additional children through natural means. Scripture reveals that to us about them. Two of these children, James and Jude, they became leaders in the early church. They weren't apostles. There was an apostle James, but the, the James that's a half-brother of Christ, it's a different James. But two of these children, James and Jude, they become leaders in the early church, and they wrote two of the letters that we have in the New Testament. If you go to the end of the New Testament, you see the, the book of James, you see a very small book named Jude. They were written by the half-brothers of Jesus. But prior to Christ's resurrection, they didn't seem to believe in Him. They didn't seem to think He was who He said He was. They didn't seem to think that, uh, that you know, all this was true, at least at that point. In fact, when you look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. There's other examples in Scripture where they have that same kind of attitude. really doesn't appear to be until after Christ's resurrection that they become convinced that he is who he says he is. And at this point in ministry, you have Christ's earthly brothers, though. They're saying that they think he's crazy. They even tried to seize him by force to prevent him from maybe stirring up the crowds even more. But later in their lives, things change. They feel quite differently. James, in particular, becomes a prominent leader in the early church. He was known as a man of prayer. Someone said to me uh, recently, this is the second time I wore this shirt, okay? And uh, recently I was like, you know, all I wear, all I wear are um, basically just like polos and khakis and jeans and stuff. And I was like, so at least I have to update the colors. 
And someone said to me, oh, you got a, a new one. I like that color. And I was like, I don't even know what to call this color. And they're like, oh, it's camel. I was like, camel? Camel is a color? They said, it's camel. Well, James, you're like, what does this have to do anything? I promise you, I'm coming around to it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, had a nickname during his generation. It's believed that his nickname was Old Camel Knees. Sons of Thunder for the other James, Old Camel Knees for the half-brother of Jesus. Do you know why he was called Old Camel Knees? Like, why would somebody have knees that remind them of a camel? He was known to be a man of prayer. And he prayed so frequently and so often, often on his knees, that it's believed that was his nickname, Old Camel Knees. His knees got all knobby and calloused because he'd spent so much time on, in, in prayer, and people looked at him, and they're like, and by the way, if you ever want to grow in wisdom, have a prayer life like, the, like James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was known as a man of wisdom. I, I believe he would ask the Lord for wisdom. When, people, when, the, when the apostles wanted something just arbitrated, they needed an arbiter, someone who had wisdom, they'd go to James. They'd be like, James, help us figure this thing out. And James would share wisdom from the Lord with them, and he became a prominent leader in the early church. And even though he wasn't considered an apostle, he was certainly respected by the apostles, and like I said, they'd often seek his counsel, but James experienced a similar fate to the apostles. So in Mark 3, you see him saying that Jesus is out of his mind, but by the end of his life, he comes around to say, no, I was out of my mind to think that. He wasn't out of his mind, I was out of my mind. And he realizes that Jesus is who he says he is, and his faith in his brother Jesus, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, it grew so strong that those who set themselves against him as his enemies threatened to throw him off the temple in Jerusalem. They, they threatened to just throw him right off the roof if he didn't recant his faith in, in Jesus Christ. And when he refused, they threw him to the ground. It was a distance of about 100 feet. And then having discovered that the fall didn't kill him, they then beat him with a club until he expired. And that's how his life ended. And you look at this and I think, all right, these testimonies and what these men endured, I actually look at it, in some respects, we hear it, but it's kind of hard to stomach a little bit to think about what these guys went through. And my goal in mentioning that today, really, to be honest with you, it's not to disturb us. I did want to paint a full picture of what these guys did and what they were willing to endure. But the idea is I just wanted to show the real price that was paid by our forefathers in faith to enable you and me to be able to hear the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were that devoted to making sure that that message got out. They did not care about the human cost that they would experience. They wanted the message to go out. Jesus gave his life so that you and I would find new life in him. That's the gift of Christ. New life in him as we trust in Jesus. We're granted it. The apostles and the early church leaders, they gave their lives to make sure that that message was shared. And believers throughout the centuries have been doing the same because Christ has taught us to live as people with eternity on our minds. If we live as people with eternity on our minds, we don't get all stuck in the things of this world because we know that anything we endure right now it's not going to last forever. It's just temporary. It's momentary. We live with eternity on our minds. Now, here's the thing. You may or may not experience outright persecution for your faith in this world. I don't know what the Lord has ordained for you. You may or may not experience outright persecution for your faith. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. 
But whether you do or whether you don't, please remember the examples of those who came before us. Please remember what these guys went through. And I think looking at their examples can be inspiring because we have the opportunity to live as men and women who have been given a message and a mission that we're called to make known in the midst of a world of hostility. There is no other name but the name of Jesus by which we must be saved. And this world needs to hear that. And the means that the Lord has ordained is that that message be shared from your lips and mine, regardless of what it costs us this side of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this that it, in one glance we could look at it and say, yeah, it looks like just a list of names. It looks like a group of people that you called out from among a larger group. And in some respects, I imagine there are plenty of people that when they read this portion of Scripture, they, they just glance over it. It's just another list of names. They just glance over it, go through it real quickly, and move on. But thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege to spend a little time looking at it with more depth or clarity and just thinking about what it really meant to be called to serve in the capacity that, that these apostles were being called to serve. Again, I, I imagine in the moment when your son called them, they felt honored. They probably felt respected. They felt set apart. They felt unique. It wouldn't surprise me to even discover that, that some of them even felt maybe a little puff of pride as this was an opportunity that they were graced with, a calling on their lives. But Lord, just like you, you did for the Apostle Paul, you did for these other men as well, and you showed them how much they must suffer for your name. And again, Lord, none of us look at this and say, oh, I, I just want to suffer. That's typically not the posture that we take. That's typically not the type of thing that, that we uh, are looking for in our lives. I don't think that that's something we even wish upon other people. If we're people of good faith, we don't want to see people suffer. And yet at the same time, you paint a very clear picture for us in your word, showing us that Sometimes that's what we're called to do, and if you call us to do that, you're going to be glorified in it. There's going to be good to, that comes from it in regard to people coming to know you. There's also going to be good that comes from that in regard to our own lives. I think all of us could testify at this point that it's through our seasons of suffering that our prayer life deepens. It's through our seasons of suffering that our trust in you is given the opportunity to be tested and grow. And Lord, so often we don't want those seasons to come, but then when we look at, at the results that come from them, it's hard to argue with the fact that this is really a blessing. And so, Lord, thank you so much for every challenge that you've given us the opportunity to endure thus far. Anything that comes our way, we pray that we would handle with the grace that you supply and that we would always keep eternity on our minds knowing that whatever we endure this side of heaven, it's just for a moment. It doesn't last a long time. We have an eternity of joy and peace in your presence. You tell us in that context, there'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. The old order of things will pass away. So that is coming, but we're not there yet. And so in the meantime, Lord, we pray that we remember those that came before us who paid a price so that we could hear the life-changing message of your gospel. And here we are on the other side of the world, meditating on it, proclaiming it, rejoicing in it but also today acknowledging the sacrifices that were made so that it would reach our ears. Father, thank you so much for what your Son has accomplished on our behalf. 
Thank you for the privilege that it is to be counted among your children through Jesus Christ. And thank you for the privilege, Lord, to be sent into this world with a message on a mission to represent your son, Jesus Christ, wherever we go. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the encouragement we receive from your word and for your presence with us today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.